I think it was that great sage RuPaul who once said, new friends silver, old friends gold. I'm very lucky that many of my friends are very interesting, very talented people. And today's episode of the podcast features one of my goldest of gold friends. He is Justin Moon, a master teacher from Greenwich College. Now, Justin has been working in the education space for over two decades. And we've been having an ongoing conversation around language and trauma. So he teaches English as a second language, a lot of different language skills, and he's a teacher of teachers. So the question on the podcast today, what happens when you are trying to acquire language, when your nervous system is all dysregulated? What is it like to not have access to language and what does that do to you? And how as a teacher do you stand in front of a group of people and make them feel calm and safe and regulated enough to learn something as hard as a language? Oh, that's a lot of questions. And you know what? We're going to get the answers right now. Justin Moon, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Polly. Now, I, I'm going to try to not ramble around, but as my regular listeners will know, that's an impossibility. But I want to start at the macro end of this discussion around language and trauma and then bring it back into some of your micro experiences over your 20 plus years of teaching. Yep. What is it from your experience for people to come somewhere and be robbed of language? What is mm. it like? So I think the best examples of that is when you see beginner and elementary students who are that, that sort of big lost look, you know, and it's, it's really endearing because you kind of always feel really paternal or maternal towards them. But you also really understand that they are in a world of pain around expressing identity, let alone getting on with just day-to-day business. So for them to be in a situation where their normal proficiency is completely robbed, where their normal avenues of expression are null and void, they don't have any outlet to really make sense of the world when they, when they move to Australia or come to Australia. That, that, that journey that they're on to get to proficiency some of them move really, really quickly. Some of them move really slowly. And I think that depends on the amount of support that they're getting in the community, in the school as well, and how they themselves deal with the pressures that they're under. So I suppose it's, it's most obvious at the lower levels, but we see it at all levels of the school where people, people stop learning or have trouble learning because they're feeling so many other pressures. I think probably using the word robbed was a bit a bit hyperbolic for me because, I mean, <laughs> we are talking about people who are coming to Australia, Australia in this instance by choice, yeah, yeah. but I still feel it's that experience of suddenly not being able to express. So also what I want to know is what do you observe happening in the body for people when they are trying to access a, a spectrum of words to describe emotions to describe Mm. that meaning you're talking about but that's the thing that i think we don't often see it because a lot of people can't express those emotions in their second language so it does come down to the body and good teachers observe that in a lot of different things the way a student enters the room can be really telling and in terms of whether they've got whether they've got their eyes up or down Uh, Some students walk into the room head down. They don't want to kind of start the process of engaging with a teacher. Others are really open to the experience and their body language is really positive. But I think it all comes down to observing them 
I mean, the typical signs that we look at, the, the, the crossed arms, the, the tapping feet, you know, often the tapping foot, we think of it as, as impatience, but it, I don't think it's always that. And especially with those lower level students, I think it's definitely not impatience. And that's just nervousness. Yeah, that's exactly. Fear. That, that's, yeah, that's a fear response. So that's, I want to get out of here. I want to move, but I'm stuck. And I'm stuck in a place where I have to be because I'm on a visa that says I have to be here. So there's, there's several different factors that impact on them and make them, I suppose, yeah, well, they're in a vulnerable space. And the job of good teaching is to make them feel safe. It is incredibly vulnerable, isn't it? And mm. both you and I have spent time in countries where we have no language. And yeah. really, <laughs> this, I think for the first time I really understood the importance of what it did to you when you were effectively silenced and raised mm. was mm. when I went to China for work and, and for the first time being in a country where there wasn't a Latin-based alphabet where mm. I couldn't just look at a sign and say, Make oh, I'm going here yeah. and yeah. that I was in a fairly small province, English wasn't widely spoken, mm. And that I, I had that sense that not even in the real time moment, but that I was in danger mm. because if I really needed someone, yeah. I had no capacity to communicate. And that sat in my nervous system. So there was kind of like a hypervigilance. Yep, of, absolutely. Uh, what, you know, what, what would I do? But mm. yet, so My I, experience in China was really similar because you have that, you have to trust yeah. the people that you're with. And if you're not in a position where you can actually settle into that trust mode, and I think... That depends on how well you know them, what your previous experiences have been with them, etc. So you do end up in this heightened state where you are super aware of what's going on around you, but you're also aware of how much you don't even understand about mm. what's going on around you because the codes are so different, the, the, the whole situation is foreign. And I, I really try and help my other, my colleagues, my co-teachers understand that these students come to us in a really vulnerable place, away from family, support networks, familiarity, uh, you know, and some of the problems that we see in classrooms in terms of, you know, behaviour is often them really just re wanting some comfort. So the person who's on their phone, you know, because they're actually checking in with family or things like that. And it's not about I'm sort of not interested in my class, but I really just need a moment where I understand what's going on. And this is where the trauma-informed lens really changes the game. And, you know, I was actually I was thinking that, that that time in China, the first time, was the moment where I really moved out of that, that cognitive empathy that I'd see people on the streets in Australia that mm. were clearly struggling and mm. I'd be like, oh, that must be hard for you. I remember coming back and standing at a, you know, a, a traffic light and reading the sign, hearing the sound and thinking, oh, I know what this means. I'm looking around <sighs> yeah. and it's like, is there someone I can help? Anybody? Anybody? <laughs> but, you know, I just, I think that that trauma-informed lens as a teacher is really interesting because if we don't bring that, then we're teaching a room full of, of warm bodies that we're kind of all expecting to perform in the same way. Here's the yeah. teaching. You should yeah. be, just be getting this. Yep. Yep. I think this is probably the micro of that macro lens of, you know, we on the podcast talk a lot about polyvagal theory and about the nervous system. And what we know is that the minute we move out of that ventral vagal space in our prefrontal cortex, we lose the language centres. We lose mm. those places mm. where we can think and speak and be emotional and literate and reference memory and reference mm. all that stuff. So when you've got a class full of people and they're in that vulnerability you describe and they're in that cultural schism that you're talking about, how do they access the places that help mm. them learn? I mean, is mm. this a struggle for you? Yes. I think a lot of people don't know how they learn best 
The, mm. There's educational issues at play, the education system in their home countries, how long it's been since they've been in a formal learning environment. There are so many things that intersect in that room. But I think creating a safe place, you know, I'm really influenced by counselling and therapy in my teaching work because I see so many parallels. And for us to create safe places where the student feels that they're going to be supported as they change and that they're going to be held in a safe place. And that's really about really good interpersonal skills, really good management of the class, but also noticing, you know, I think if you just, that whole thing of the teacher just walks in and just gets started without really engaging with where are my students at today, let alone, you know, on the macro scale, but right now at this moment, what's my class feeling like? Does the room feel safe? Is, is there a good energy here? And doing something to alter that or make it move before you start teaching. They don't take stuff in if they're not safe and processing. So I think teachers have to be really aware in the second language environment that you've got all these different people from all these different backgrounds and you need to find a common ground for them where they feel supported. And hopefully as that safety, well, I suppose, I mean, we know it because there's that, the other side of that is the joy when they are getting it and as they find their voice. Teaching a beginner class is one of the most rewarding things you can do as an ESL teacher because you see these flash, like light bulb moments all the time of them going, oh, great, now I've got the tool that I need, the vocab or the grammar structure to do that particular function. I can tick that one off my list. And it's a huge list at the start. It seems like a, you know, an mm. insurmountable mountain. And seeing that joy, that, that sort of freshness in their face when they sort of go, oh, okay, that's the reward of it, I suppose. Justin, you've been teaching both in an ESL environment and in high schools and stuff for a long time. Now, I know this isn't taught mm. in a teacher education no. university course. How did you come to this? What are the sort of things that you self-taught and why to be able to bring this to the classroom? Because it is quite a radical approach from my observation. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I did a professional development session the other day on, and I'm, I'm, I... I utilize a lot of counseling language, but I, I was talking about person-centered teaching as opposed to person-centered yeah. therapy because the principles are exactly the same. Yeah. And what it is is years in the classroom watching and observing a lot of other teachers. I've been really fortunate to always be in a position where I'm observing teachers, both as the sort of learner and as the, the trainer, and noticing that it doesn't matter how good your skills are, it doesn't matter how many qualifications you have, it doesn't matter how many years you've studied grammar, if you can't connect to that person and show them that you're working in their best interests, that you're gonna hold the space for them, and that they're gonna be safe. For the five hours that they're in your class, they don't have to worry about being misinterpreted. They don't have to worry about being abused for not speaking the language properly. They don't have to feel inferior. That's what helps a student learn. And you can be the, the best qualified teacher, but if you don't have those interpersonal skills, you're not gonna make the connection that's necessary. So it was really just by observing a lot of teachers who look great on paper, and you walk in and, and observe what's going on in their classes, and you see disengagement, disinterest, you see situations that they should have noticed that they just haven't even been aware of. So yeah, it's a real lack in our industry that it's not trained in that way. And that's why organisations, if they're brave enough, have to take the step to do that in-house training. 
I think, you know, our school's really lucky because they've, they've taken my lead on a lot of these things and, and let me train this way. So all of our new teachers get that little insight that we want you to keep these things in mind. It's not just about getting through the textbook. You've got to think about these people as people primarily. It's really interesting, Justin, because I think one of the things that I observe so much is that many of us are really afraid of who we are. We don't have a great deal of grounded confidence. We might have a great capacity for performance, but our inner narratives and our attachment is sort of saying, we're well, not enough and someone's going to find that out sooner or later. Yep. And one of the things that I've always talked about in our leadership training is that idea that when you don't know everything, when you're not the smartest person in the room, you're the most powerful person in the room because mm. your openness means that everyone can make mistakes along with you yep. and everyone can learn yeah, from yeah, each yeah. other. Yeah. And I think for me, what you're saying when I think about it from a neurological perspective is that when we're in that place of a sympathetic response. I mean, we're sympathetic response. We're moving towards mobilisation. So we're standing in front of a room of people and I've done you know, a fair bit of teaching. And if you don't know enough about what you're doing, it's quite terrifying because you have to pretend that yep. you're the authority from the front of the room, if that's how you teach. Yep. So you're already in a sympathetically aroused state, yeah, which means yeah. that you have moved out of that part of your connection in that ventral vagal place in the nervous system that allows you to see others. Mm. So it's really hard to pay attention and to be mindful or however you use that language and be laser focused on a room full of different people's micro nuanced movements in their body when all you can think about is are they going to find out? Yeah, are they going to find sure. out? And it's a, it, that's again, that's something that they don't teach you that being yourself means not knowing everything. And no. it's really cool to just go, I don't know, let's find out because yeah. now we've got a shared place of discovery. I think I was really fortunate to have really great professors at university when I was doing my education qualifications and that that environment that I was in led me to make the promise to myself that the day I stop learning is the day I stop teaching. Yeah. And I learn something about mm. a word, a grammar structure, or a person every single day in the room because I'm really open to that experience. But I was also thinking as you were talking about how sometimes when I watch young or less experienced teachers and they're, they're really nervous, they're in that state of, he's yeah. gonna find out fight I'm, fight, I'm, fight I'm an imposter, yeah. I'm an imposter. Um, It'll be them <clears throat> clearing their throat, <clears throat> losing their voice, the voice squeaking, you know, the they're, yeah, they're in that state. And that means, yeah, they're really shut off from what's actually going on. In and they're that transmitting moment. that from their yeah, nervous system totally. to the class. Yeah, so yeah. that bunch of animals is they looking smell at that it. alpha they animal smell the it. going, that animal is shitting itself. Yep. Yep. Yeah. It's really super interesting. So, yep. but again, I think there's. In a therapy space, we would always say that, you know, you can't safely hold space for someone unless you're doing the work yourself, yourself. unless you're really yep. sort of going into that place and you know when you can't hold the room safely. Yep. Yep. So how do you prepare yourself to be that that clear vessel at the front that can show up in granted confidence mm. and have that neuroceptive response with your student that says, hey, I'm here, I'm looking after you, you're safe and we're here together. What, yeah. what are your, do you have a ritual or a practice? I... I walk into a room with intention. So, and I always tell my young teachers as well, my newer teachers, stop before you walk through the threshold yeah. and just clap, clear things out in your mind. Park your stuff if there's stuff to be parked and there's always stuff to yeah. be parked. Park it, walk in with, and, and be positively led. Say something, you know, if you've got a, a mantra from your own practice, say it there. Bring, bring, your, bring your spirit into that place walking with intention that it's going to be a good experience for everybody, that you're feeling ready for that place. And again, 
be it till you are it, fake it till you make it, say those things even if they're not the reality of your lived moment, trick yourself if you need to until you actually have the knowledge, the skill base and the attentiveness to really... And look, I, I believe teaching is the finest of the human arts. Mm. It's that space where you can make an enormous difference and you can make an enormous problem for people. Yeah. Like Interesting. In, in both ends of the spectrum. So we want to obviously minimise the chance of it going wrong and maximise the chance of it going well. But that's also about, for us, again, we're lucky to have the, the infrastructure in place to check in with new teachers before they... St- as in, you know, 8.30 in the morning, hey, how's everything going? Are you ready for today? What's your first activity? Oh, yeah, you could do it this way. I, I love being able to pass on some of that knowledge to make sure that teachers because those first couple of minutes are really important and that sets them up to then sort of know, okay, I'm, I'm being supported, so now I've got some space to support my class. So as a master teacher, so as you say, you're looking after the sort of the care and the pastoral care of a whole lot of mm. adult teachers and also a whole lot of adult learners. Yeah. What happens when trauma shows up in your teaching cohort or in the classroom? How do you manage it? <sighs> That's a tricky one. Obviously, we have sort of, we've got student counsellors, et cetera, okay. that can do some of that work for us. If, if I always say to my students, to my teachers, know when you've reached your yeah. boundary. So important. It's so important. You know, if, if you start realising. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So if you know that the person in front of you is actually manifesting a lot of trauma that's not related to your grammar lesson in the slightest. <laughs> grammar can be quite traumatic. <laughs> grammar can be traumatic. Um, when you correct my text. Sorry. Um, but when, you, when you're in that situation, it's really important to have boundaries, to yeah. know when you need to sort of move up a level and go, okay, yeah. I need this person's help, I need this, or this student needs to talk to this person. So making sure that those boundaries are really clear for my teachers and when it's the teacher having the issue, and, and again, that comes up as well. Humans leading humans. humans, humans yeah, 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 yeah. And hurt people leading hurt yeah, people, you yeah. know. So if there's stuff coming up for a teacher, I try to make myself very available to that person. It's also really important not to scrutinise them at that point. That's not when they need somebody judging them. That's when they need somebody to go, hey, you know, how are you feeling right now? What's going on yeah. for you? And I think knowing that you're on their side... You know, so I always sort of say to my, my, when I'm observing and training, I'm not here to tear you down. I'm here to build you up. You know, I want to find all of the good things about you and make them super shiny. And that's, that's how you support teachers to look after their cohorts. What happens, just I was thinking about something you were saying earlier in the podcast where you know, you're creating these beautiful, safe environments where people can fail, people can mispronounce, people can do all this stuff. What happens then when those students re-enter the broader world where mm. they may be in workplaces where that is not available to them? Does it, does it kind of take people back in their learning or how, are you equipping them to kind of be able to roll with that? You may not know the answer, I'm just interested. No, well, look, the, the context that I would use is that we're preparing a lot of students for English tests like okay. the Cambridge yeah. Suite or IELTS, etc. And I always say to my students, you know that when you walk into that test room, all of your fears are going to come out. Your language level is going to drop. Yeah. So if you're at this level, he says, indicating with his hand this level. Um, because it's so visual. I know, right? Um, if you're at this level, you can expect a kind of a 10% drop just because of the pressure of the exam. 
So I think in the real world, it's exactly the same. Yeah, and this is a language lesson for life, right? Because people yeah. always say to me, oh, if I, I just wanted to say this and I didn't think about it till I was 10 minutes outside yeah. of the argument. Yeah. It's like, yeah, because your brain had to come back online for you to be able to do that in a way that allowed you accessing language. And I don't think we know that. We don't no. get taught that about language. No, absolutely. So watching it through their eyes, I, I'm monolingual and... Obviously, bilingual oh, teachers. Awesome. I know, right? <laughs> I'm Australian. <laughs> um, the a lot of teachers on staff are multilingual. They see the student experience through their own lens of having gone through that process. I've had 26 years of teaching that process and observing it through other people. Mm. So mine is a different lens. Yeah. But I understand it simply because of the amount of exposure I've had to it in terms of what happens to people when they're put into different contexts. Even a student who's really chatty sitting down with their classmate, but when they have to do a presentation in front of the same classmates, but suddenly the language drops away. Yeah. And that's a fear response, you know? So encouraging them and really focusing on the positives pointing out where they can improve and work, but also explaining that I understand what fear does to you. I understand what the stress of that did to you. I know that's not an example of your best English, yeah. you know, but you've got to take the, take the context into, situa into, into consideration. Yeah. Justin, thank you so much for talking with us today. It's really interesting to see that trauma-informed lens put across a whole lot of different yeah, sectors and experiences. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'm so glad that all of those students and teachers that come through your hands and come through your education is getting that care. So thank Thanks, you for being Polly. in the world. Thank you, thank you. That is it, my friends, the end of another episode of Polly's Vague Theories. But is it the end or is it just the beginning? Head to the website, www.pollymcgee.com. In the top right-hand corner, there's a little button, Polly's Vague Theories. You can anonymously email me there. If you'd like to ask a question, have a trauma topic explored, or even have a whole episode devoted to something that you want me to talk or think about. Plenty of other fun resources on the website as well. Until we meet again, stay regulated and stay at the top of your ladder.